It's Lightning, and thank you for joining me on this uh, bonus episode of the Truck Show Podcast. I'm here with my son, Quinn, and we're going to take a trip through the Mitchell Caverns. Now, the Mitchell Caverns are just off the I-40, and I have wanted to tour the Mitchell Caverns since I was a child, going back and forth to Arizona, Lake Havasu specifically, passing the sign that said Mitchell Caverns, and then it shut down in 2008 and just finally reopened. They tour only 30 people, two groups of 15 per day here. Luckily, Rory, head of uh, Olaf Events, set up some tours for us, and I am delighted to say I'm gonna go in frickin' Mitchell Caverns. I wanted to shout out uh, Nissan for keeping this podcast alive, and, and so you guys are amazing at Nissan. If you're looking for a full-size or mid-size pickup truck, please visit NissanUSA.com or go down to your local Nissan dealer uh, because they make one hell of an amazing truck. And of course, Banks Power, if you guys are looking for additional horsepower, fuel economy, or to put some pep in the step of your gas or diesel pickup, visit BanksPower.com. They've got tuners, intakes, exhaust brakes, differential covers, throttle boosters, you name it. Enter your year, make, and model at BanksPower.com to see what they have for you. All right, let's make the short trek above the desert floor here of the Mojave and meet our tour guide. I'll see if I can throw in some. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. so that's, that's yeah. Start one. Here we go. That's amazing. Oh, that is a great Hewlett Hauser. <laughs> a lot of practice. Well, good afternoon, everybody. I'm Andy. I will be your fearless leader as we get into Mitchell Caverns. Who's been in a cave before? Who's been in Mitchell Caverns before? We got a handful. Okay. Who's been in a cave before? Who's wearing anything they've ever worn in another cave? into this cave today? I know that's a weird question. We're taking precautions for a disease that affects bats called white nose syndrome. It's a fungus, it's new to the Americas. Came over in someone's dirty caving equipment in the early 2000s, been spreading around the country. Kills 90% of bats and infects or more. Grows out of their noses, out of their faces while they should be hibernating. You can imagine that's uncomfortable. Wakes them up and then they starve to death because most bats are going to eat insects and they need to hibernate through the winter. Awful disease doesn't affect us, but we can carry it on our boots, our clothing, our gear. So there's kind of a new rule of thumb for underground places. You never wear anything from one underground place into another underground place. Caves, mines, lava tubes. That's how this thing's been hitchhiking around the country. It's kind of the nuts and bolts, get the rules out of the way. It's the last chance for bathrooms. Just Mother Nature out there. She doesn't mind, but you probably will. <laughs> How was the cave found? Um, this cave is no secret. It's been known about for about as long as there's been people in the Mojave. And I think you'll see what I mean when we get to the entrance. Should we go meet the Mitchells? Yeah. Let's go meet the Mitchells. Here's the Mitchells, or at least a monument to them. No, they're not in here. <laughs> I just preemptively answered that question these days. It'd be uncomfortable. Yeah. It's fairly small. It is very small. Um, I actually just saw their grave on on Thursday. They're buried in needles, side by side. But Jack and Ida Mitchell built this place. Um, they came up here, Great Depression. They had lost everything in the Los Angeles area. Uh, they relocated out here, built it all. The stone buildings, the field stone buildings, all these retaining walls, much of the road here. I know it doesn't look like it's been worked on much since the Mitchells, some big potholes there. But uh, they also chased water out of a spring. 
about a half mile up and 1,200 feet above us using, boy, hoses and pipes, anything they could find and cobble together here. And they ran this as a Route 66 roadside attraction until Jack passed in 1954, when it was then sold to the state, became a state park. Uh, these are tough people, pioneers. I should add they were in their 50s when they started doing this. Kind of larger than life. Larger than life couple, a power couple of the Mojave Desert, you could say. Jack Mitchell was the visionary. He gave the tours. He was the builder. Kind of a jack of all trades. We have a book of his writing in the visitor center gift store there. It's called Keeper of the Caves. I don't want to plug the bookstore too much, but it is a good read. Just take all of his stories with a lot of salt. <laughs> the man never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Uh, to me, he's like P.T. Barnum meets Teddy Roosevelt. He's a promoter, a booster, um, a salesman, right? A showman for sure. And like T.R., he actually had the energy and the drive and the vision to do something that many people would think impossible. Most people, like, I can't imagine coming up here you know, in, in my 50s and then building these buildings by hand, um, chasing water out of springs, hunting for food. Uh, very interesting people. Jack is such a large personality, he really kind of overshadows his wife, Ida, um, at least in the historical record. A little unfair, because Ida was pretty gnarly too. Jack may have been like the front man, the tour guide, the builder, but Ida kind of ran the business. And this was a business, right? This is a Route 66 tourist business. You could come up here, they would feed you, give you a cave tour. You could spend the night in one of the outbuildings. So Ida took, did the cooking, the housekeeping, raised granddaughters up here. And the granddaughters actually told me a story that's gonna set us off on this trail to the caves because apparently it was Ida's idea. In the early days before Ida's trail, to go on a tour of Mitchell Caverns with Jack, you would have left here, you would have gone all the way downhill. And then if we look at that ridge line about a half mile out, you can see that long linear feature, right? There's a trail that goes from the lower right to the upper left. That's where you had to start gaining all the elevation you lost. Dog legging, right? Back and forth up that kind of unstable slope of the mountain. Uh, not an easy route. Jack, I guess, was back here complaining one day. And uh, Ida says to him, Jack, I'm, I'm, we, we have this discussion a lot. You know, I know the cave tour is tiring. You got to go up and down the hill. Why don't we just make a trail that would go right to the caves? Jack is in a bad mood, despite the logic of Ida's argument. One of her arguments, too, was check out the view. Yeah. Today, we got a really good view of the Hualapai Mountains south of Kingman, Arizona. That's the far mountain range. And that's two and a half hours to drive up there. It's probably almost 100 miles as the bird would fly. That's kind of half the attraction is the view, right? Jack is not having it though. He's like, this is a rough slope. We can't just put a trail in here. Plus I'm gonna have to do most of the work. It's not gonna happen. I'm told the discussion went back and forth. And when it ended, Ida goes out to one of the sheds, the outbuildings. She grabs some rags and some old tools and such, hits this hillside, blazing the trail, comes back at the end of the day, says, Jack, I found the route. Now you just gotta build the trail. Go, yeah, which- she did it herself. <laughs> And somebody has commented, I just run with this. This is not an original thought, but it's kind of the Mojave Desert's best honey-do list of all time. <laughs> all right. Today I want you to build me a trail on the mountain. State Parks has taken Ida's idea and really run with it from 2016, autumn of 2016 to the spring of 2018. Not including summers, there was a CCC, a California Conservation Trail team out here. 
California Conservation Corps, and State Parks Trails teams out of Sacramento. And they spent months reinforcing the trail, different aggregates to help with drainage. You can see that patch of riprap, right? Looks like a jigsaw puzzle of rocks. That's to stop that from washing out when we get those summer monsoons, the flash flood season. I was here for a, a flash flood event in July 6, 2015 that blew this trail into pieces. We got, well, it topped, overtopped the rain gauge in an hour of precipitation, which is three inches. Most of that was hail. It was crazy. I've never seen a storm like that. Did a lot of damage, and then they came to refix it. I think you guys will appreciate all the hard work. It's a lot more level now, so we get to look around as we hike. Not only get to take in the view, but we should get some reptiles today. Keep your eyes open for our chuckwallas, which is a really big local lizard. A lot of this rock work that they did on the trail is like chuckwalla condos. So they've really moved in. We'll keep our eyes peeled. Do you guys have any questions? Yeah. Can you still sleep? Today. You know, n only park staff. And you're probably a little too young to work here. Boo! Right now it's just park housing. They may rent out in the future the what they call the stone igloo or the honeymoon Hogan. Uh, there's a perfectly, there's a perfect dome of a building that Jack built on an old Hollywood igloo frame. Maybe in the future we'll be renting that out. Um, put some cots in there. Generate some revenue for the park. Yeah. What year did the state actually purchase this? State purchased it in 1955. It reopened in 1959 as a state park. Boy, I don't remember the number offhand. I think it was like $30,000. The terms of the payment are kind of um, hard to understand because they're, the Mitchells may have had some debts. They may have owed some back taxes. I hear mixed stories about that. But, you know, if you adjust for inflation, which is really high right now, let's say $30,000 would probably be close to a million dollars in today's money. How many acres did they own? I think they own 198 acres outright. And that became the nucleus of a very small state park that later expanded in the late 60s, early 70s. We acquired about, well, all of the square miles that surround this area. That's when it became Providence Mountain State Recreation Area, which is kind of a problem. Most people know this place as Mitchell Caverns. I wish they would have just named it Mitchell Caverns State Park. It would have prevented a lot of confusion because Providence Mountain State Recreation Area just doesn't have the same ring, right? And so there are also mining claims on this property as well, right? There is. In fact, you feel like you're setting me up for our next stop on this tour. Because <laughs> that's a perfect segue for where we're going next. I'll we're take payment later. Yeah. <laughs> you set them up, I'll knock them down. All right, perfect. Let's go. All right, guys, follow me on this trail. Keep your eyes open for the, the snakes and lizards. Oh, this is awesome. Tell me we can go inside. Um, Possibly. This is one of Jack's mines. So I want you to picture it, it's 1920s LA, before the Great Depression, LA's a boom town. The Mitchells are living there, they have multiple businesses. Uh, Jack was a busy guy, lots of ideas, a lot of fingers and a lot of pies, right? Very generous people, they take care of a dying prospector who owns a mine in Kingman, Arizona, right? Right off Route 66. When he passes, the Mitchells inherit his old mine and they put a lot of money into it. It ultimately is not a success while he's investing in it and trying to get it going, Jack's going back and forth on Route 66, L.A. to Kingman, right? Passes right by our little Route 66, now ghost town, called Essex. That's where Essex Roads ends, and it used to be the gateway to Mitchell Caverns. Jack must have heard about these local caves that we're headed to. Now we call them Mitchell Caverns. They weren't Mitchell Caverns back then. Jack hears about them, hires the nearby ranchers 
take them out to the caves on horseback. As I mentioned earlier, these caves are no secret, right? These caves have been around for a really long time, known about for a really long time. Jack goes out to the caves on horseback and bing, right? The light bulb must have lit up above his head like in the cartoons. Because soon after that trip, after seeing the caves, he takes out a mining claim that totally surrounds the caves. Which is interesting. Mining claim, some of us might be familiar with mining claims, right? It's like renting the land from the government for real cheap. The government wants to give it to you cheap so that hopefully mines open and economies develop in these hinterlands. I think we can call this place a hinterland. So Jack uh, takes up mining claims that totally surround these caves. If you read between the lines on this, he probably wasn't that interested in mining, right? Other than maybe mining silver dollars out of people's pockets on Route 66. Historically, though, there's a lot of silver mines in this valley. In the late 1800s, there's estimated to be like 3,000 people in this valley. Mining for silver, raising horses, um, cutting firewood to run the steam boilers is a busy place. The U.S. at that time was going to move from gold-based currency to silver-based currency. Since there's more silver, the idea was, hey, we're going to have more cash money in people's pockets. 1893, there's an, an early Great Depression, the Proto-Great Depression. They decide not to go to silver, to stick with a gold standard, which is very different than our money today, right? Now we just print money. The Mitchells uh, ostensibly were mining for silver. Jack may have actually done a little actual silver mining, but by the mid-1930s, he's in a bit of a pickle, right? This is a Route 66 roadside attraction business on a mining claim. You can live on your mining claim, you can build buildings on your mining claim, but what do you think you have to do on your mining claim? You gotta be mining, right? If you don't, the GLO officer shows up, out you go. So Jack has to keep mining to keep his mining claim legitimate, he may have done some actual silver mining, but when he starts this mine, this adit right here, he's mining for caves, which sounds kind of crazy. What he's looking at, though, is behind you all in the back there, all those whitish deposits on that rock. That must have been right here. You can actually still see some on the left of this mine. That's all calcium carbonate. And we have hard water at home. Kind of hard to avoid. Oh, yeah. Spoiler alert. That's the same process that creates caves. Water, especially if it's a little bit acidic, gets a little bit of carbon dioxide in there, becomes carbonic acid. Like soda, it dissolves calcium. In the limestone that's all around us, it's chock full of calcium. Because this is a 300 million year old seabed. We're going to see fossils in the cave. If you look carefully on the outside, you can even see fossils. That water dissolves calcium very easily. That's what creates caves. Same thing that makes you have to use CLR on your faucets, right? Jack knows this whitish stuff is calcium carbonate, looks very similar to what's deposited in caves. Jack is thinking there's a cave under this hill. And if he can put a mine shaft into it and discover a cave that nobody in the world has ever seen before, he puts that in Desert Magazine, LA Times. What do you think is going to happen up here? Going to get busy. Right, not just hundreds of people coming to visit, but thousands of people. At the same time, he's keeping his mining claim legitimate to the letter of the law, if not the spirit, right? Eventually, by 1940, 1941, the Mitchells outright purchased 198 acres, basically in a long rectangle from the buildings to the cave we're going to. Jack was never able to find a cave he could make money on by mining it. He never discovered a cave like that that he could make money on. 
but the cave he made money on is one that never really had to be discovered. I think you'll see what I mean when we come around the corner here. Unlock the cave. So here we are in the shade of the entryway, right, of the opening. And you can feel the cold breeze coming out. This cave is always about 62 degrees, 100% of the time, which is probably what made it a popular camping place. Once in a while, our power system here fails. We're off the grid, right? So it's generators and batteries. And if the power system fails and it's like 110, we're lucky we got the cave. You can come here with a lawn chair, a couple books, camera, 62 degrees of natural air conditioning coming out all the time. Must have been very important for people before there was any kind of climate control. On the other side of that coin, we're 4,300 feet above sea level here. So we'll get a winter, we'll get snowstorms, we'll get blizzards. If you were hunting bighorn sheep here 500 years ago and a blizzard came in, if you came and camped here, it's 62 degrees of warm air constantly coming out of this cave, right? This is climate controlled space before that was really a thing. We're gonna go in now. If you guys have water bottles, backpacks, you need to leave anything behind, you can use all these natural shelves here on the sides. People, I'm certain, been using these natural shelves for thousands of years. All right, everybody follow me. Yeah. Let's get some lights on. Did Mitchell put any of these lights in or was this the uh it was all state parks. I don't know that Mitchell's had any lights other than what they brought in. Um, I think even for the early state park period, it may have been handheld lights only. If you guys can scoot, scoot up toward me a little bit, everybody get a little closer. I just want to make sure everybody gets in here. Where we're standing now, right? Look, you can see they trenched this down. When we're all in, if the person in the back, can you guys swing the door so it appears closed? I'm going to give you a pro tip. You never lock yourself in a cave. <laughs> We're going to make it appear that it's closed. Perfect. And then I want you to feast your eyes up here Whoa. at that oily, gooey, black thing. That's um, a substance called amber rat. It's made of two words, amber and rat. I'll give you a hint. It's rat pee. It is petrified, ancient, petrified rat urine and feces in that matrix it's gross right but in that matrix is stuff that can be 50 or 60,000 years old bones native american artifacts pollen plant materials seeds all preserved in there that's how we know what the desert was like during the last ice age is from amber rat that's left by wood rats also known as pack rats right and they live that american dream of a big old house in the country as you can tell, great views from this pad. They pass that house down generation after generation, thousands of generations, but they're hoarders, right? And they urinate and defecate in their home, and that creates amber rat. Where we're walking now, you would have had to crawl through stuff like that to get in here before. And that's kind of a reoccurring theme, right? Caves are interesting, fascinating, but they're also kind of disgusting. Another reason not to touch things in here. All right, let's get to the big room. So we are walking down some metal stairs right now, and it's about uh, four flights of stairs here, and it opens up into 
a huge cavern, 100 yards across, 100 feet wide, and equally as tall. Wow. Big open space, huh? Yeah, this is amazing. So to your left, my right, we can see daylight, right? That's the other eye of the mountain up there. And somewhere around here, well, at least at one point, this was probably the route in from Jack, where there were ropes and ladders and such. Now it's very easy to get in here. This is a show cave, that's what you'd call it now. An easily enjoyable, publicly accessible cave. It's a great show cave. I would put us up against any show cave in the show cave showdown. Tonight on CBS. <laughs> so if we look further to your right, into the, or my left, into the cave, we've got this huge open space. And this one giant room and one little chamber coming off of it is the entire universe for two species that are found in this cave and nowhere else in the world. There's a little tiny insect called a niptus beetle. And there's an even smaller arachnid called a pseudoscorpion. Looks like a tick with crab claws. This is it. This is the only place in the world you're going to find them. They're very strange. Right? They've changed a lot. They've been in here so long, they can't leave. They're stuck in here. They can't survive outside. They've actually become a lot like the character Gollum. Do some of us know Gollum? Yep. Gollum was a hobbit. He's been in a cave for a long time. He changed. What was... What's different about Gollum in those stories from the other hobbits? I'm looking for three things. The, his skin color, right? Yes. Yeah, no sunlight. Yeah, no sunlight, no reason for sunscreen. Why waste the energy protecting your internal organs from ultraviolet radiation? Both of these insects are losing the pigmentation in their shells. They're saving energy, not by choice, but over natural selection for a long period of time. They almost look like a drop of honey now. You can shine a flashlight on them and they almost glow. There's other famous cave animals where you can see all of their internal organs through their skin. There's famous amphibians and catfish that way. What else is different about Gollum? We got the skin color. His height? Yeah, he's gotten smaller. I'm looking also for his eyes. His eyes got bigger, but for most cave animals, they lose their vision. Do you need eyes if there's no sunlight, if there's no light at all? So over time, these animals' eyes get smaller and smaller. The Niptus beetle's eyes are 10% the size of its cousins that live on the surface. They can't really see anymore. They seem to be able to tell light from dark when we put a flashlight on them, but that's about it. Again, saving energy. Why have something you're never going to use? The last thing that changes if you live in a cave too long is your diet. Not much on the menu. Any, anyone want to take a guess on what the number one source of food in this cave is? They're not really picky. They'll eat bat guano. They'll eat wood rat droppings. Any animal that comes in here and does its business, it's on the menu for the Nymptus beetle. They lay their eggs on it. They tunnel through it. They hang out around it. It's their whole world. Kind of gross, right? There's not much else to eat in here, though. In turn, those Nymptus beetles are hunted by the pseudoscorpion, the tick with crab claws. Both of these animals are weird. They're kind of unknown to science. There's been like one scientist who ever studied them. And the total population is in the hundreds. Like ever permanently. This is the only place in the world you're going to find them. To protect them, we want to stay on the pavement, okay? We don't want to go running around in the dirt where they like to crash out and hide. Can we do it? Yep. On your left, you're going to see stalactites. And usually, 
If there's one kind of cave formation most people are familiar with, it's the stalactite, right? This stuff on your left as you come down, this is caused by water dripping. And we can actually see some stalactites growing right now. What do you see right there? Water. Yeah, there's a single water drop on the end of that soda straw. Soda. That's what they call it, yeah, because it's as thin as a soda straw, and guess what? It's also hollow. The water's hanging there, and it's evaporating. And when it evaporates, what's it leaving behind? Yeah, the calcium, the carbon, maybe a little iron, other minerals. It hangs there for a long time. I came in here a couple months ago to try to record it dripping for a video we were gonna do. I was thinking, oh, every half hour. It was every two hours and 45 minutes. And I ran out of batteries before I could film it, so I have to come back. Of course, the, the rate will change, right? If there's more water above us seeping down here, it'll speed up. Usually, this is the only place in the cave that there's water. No, it's just kind of water stuck in the limestone. So limestone's kind of porous and it holds water well. Um, that's one of the reasons you'll see different plants in the limestones here. But yeah, it's all about what's stuck above us. In my eight years, six months, two weeks, four days that I've worked here, and probably five hours. Who's keeping track? Not that I'm counting. <laughs> um, but there's always been water right there. Never not water. There's another drop right there, and I think we got a third right now back on this very strange. Oh, I see it. See that in the back? And that's kind of a lot of water. Although, anybody from California here? Yep. Right? The winter of 2016, 2017, anybody else remember that one? Yes, I was on the 40 freeway in that flash flood you were talking about. Yeah, yep. it was amazing. Um, the winter, the spring, it was quite a year for once we weren't in a drought. And over the winter, we had multiple deep snowfalls, heavy rains. In the desert, it's the winter precipitation that soaks into the soil. That's what gives you a good bloom in the spring. And that winter, if you remember up in Northern California, that's when the Oroville Dam was gonna burst, right? And they evacuated people, crazy. Not usually a problem in California to have too much water. But here, it was quite a winter. For a while, we actually had to go stay over that winter. We got kicked out. They made us go stay at the casinos in Laughlin. It was rough. <laughs> I made it. Blackjack tables were good. But six weeks after those big winter storms, this cave had thousands of water drops in it. Thousands and thousands. It sounded like a relaxation tape. I actually recorded it. And the humidity changed, and even the temperature changed in this area. But what was the most exciting part of that winter and spring is we had a baby born in this cave. Mm-hmm, not mine. It's still in here. Do you guys want to see it? Sure. Oh, there it is. You see it right there? That is a baby stalagmite. Let me see it with another light. We can see it a little better. That's a little better. See that discoloration? For six months, right at the tip of my finger there, the shadow. Water was dripping, splashing, evaporating. What was it leaving behind? Calcium. Calcium. Carbon. It's got an older sibling, maybe a brother or sister. I'm not sure of the relationship, but look at this. This one's been going for decades. But you know, those stalagmite babies, they grow up so fast. <laughs> All right, look, you can step on these. Don't be concerned. Kids are resilient, right? You blink your eyes. A couple hundred thousand years go by and your babies are all grown up. Whoa. We light up these big ancient stalactites. 
Give it enough time, give it enough water, those little discolorations on the pavement will become this. So how tall is the one we're standing in front of now that connects floor to ceiling? That's a good question. I'd say about 40 feet. I think the tallest, the tallest area in this room is about 56 feet, if I remember having a laser pointer in here. But we have a really significant feature right in front of us, right? Up on top, I'm gonna teach you guys the rhyme. You all can take this home, it's not proprietary. Stalactites hold tight to the ceiling, right? Stalagmites might touch them. And if they do, what do we call them? We call them a column. <laughs> this water drop I pointed out earlier, we think we know when the larger stalactite broke. Mid-1950s, State Parks is trying to reopen this, right, to the public. Somebody's in here evening the floors out, doing some kind of construction work. Something happened with a tool and they broke that larger stalactite. And that soda straw, which is what? Maybe an inch and a quarter? That's what's grown since the mid-1950s. Wow, that's slow. And really, for how much water is in here, that's kind of a fast rate of growth for how little water's in here. So if that's, what, 70 years old? I mean, how old, how old is this stuff around us? I can guarantee you, though, 10, 15 million years ago, when this was growing, it wasn't a water drop hanging for two and a half hours, right? This would have looked like somebody left the faucets on and the water would have been pouring in here, dripping in here. One of the ways you know the water was coming in fast, look how small the stalactites are compared to the stalagmites. That water wasn't hanging very long, right? The minerals were deposited after it fell down. There's three basic phases to make this. And we kind of touched on this outside. Step one, remember that mesa? All that ash filled these valleys, the water table got raised up. Water table's up high, there's cracks in the limestone filled with water. The sides are dissolving away slowly over hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of years. At the end of phase one, you kind of have to imagine that this is a giant water-filled cavity underground with no stalactites or stalagmites in it. Just a big water-filled cave. That's phase one. For phase two, all that volcanic ash outside, it's eroding away quickly, geologically speaking, not human, in human time frame. Water table's falling. Now we're getting air in the cavity, but water's still passing through. And that's what creates all of these totally surreal formations, right? Everybody's favorite part of the cave's life is phase two, the decoration. Phase three is a little sadder. All of the material that's in these stalactites and stalagmites, where was it before it was in this room? Where was that carbon and calcium? Where was the water? And where was the limestone? Above us though, right? So this stuff's getting bigger and the ceiling's getting weaker. The cracks above us are getting bigger, very, very slowly. That's phase three, it's called collapse. And it's more of a process than an event. I've been in here thousands of times. I've never seen anything fall. I've never heard anything fall. I've never really even seen anything out of place, right? But let's look back to where we came in. Look where Jack brought people over. All those giant boulders, like look at this thing. Where's my laser pointer? You can actually see where this came out in the ceiling. If 
fell down, right? The big boulders and even these smaller rocks here, kind of scary. You know, they're all poisonous. Yeah, one drop will kill you. Dum dum. Thank you. Keep your waitress. He'll be here all night. Try the veal. <laughs> Somebody told me don't quit your day job. I'm like, this is my day job. That's not an original. I got that from an old cave, an old hand here at the cave. Um, earthquakes can do that. But caves are kind of, in a sense, safer than other places in earthquakes. And I'm going to go to what geologists love. We're going to go to a food metaphor. We all know M&Ms, right? Yeah. They have a thin candy shell that protects them from? Melting. Melting in your hand, in your pocket. Well, we're in a reverse M&M. We have a hard candy shell around us. That's all of this crazy cave formation. Right? And I'm actually going to pass this around so you guys can feel the weight. This is a broken stalactite. You can see there's crystals in it. I think you're going to be impressed with the weight. You're going to want to use two hands. It's much heavier than you think. That material, that calcium and carbon, when it's getting deposited, is crystallized and dense. And it actually is kind of sealing us in like a candy shell. The chocolate is the limestone around us. When there's been earthquakes locally, I know 1999, there was a big one right in the valley and it broke rocks on the entrance to the cave, but not in the cave. Other caves that are in earthquake country, um, for example, Carlsbad Caverns, which is an oil country, right? They frack for natural gas and oil there. There's, with fracking comes lots of small earthquakes. They never feel an earthquake in Carlsbad Caverns. They never feel it shake, they just feel the wind move, right? Mm. This stuff, you can feel how dense it is, it's a bit of a shock absorber. So generally speaking, we're safer in a cave than not during an earthquake. Prepare to be amazed. Where is it? Where's the right switch? There we go. Whoa. Yeah. So that almost looks like a mushroom coming off of a tree trunk. But it's, I don't know, three or four feet across. It's called a cave shield. So this looks like an upside down tree stump. Yeah. What creates the cave shield is not water dripping, but a horizontal crack, right? Horizontal crack where water's coming out under pressure, a little bit like having your thumb over the garden hose. I'm sure some of us have sprayed people with a garden hose, right? If you could keep your thumb on there for a couple hundred thousand years, you might be able to make your own cave shield. The water's coming out, it's literally evaporating and depositing minerals in the shape of it, right? arcing out and, and coming down. You can see in the original shape, all these curtains that come down. They're almost like stalactites, right? You can imagine, we all felt that one piece we passed around, imagine how heavy this stuff is. If it breaks just right, you're left with the cave shield. Another very interesting cave formation, right? Some of you might not be able to see those very well until you get a little closer. Looks like coral. Looks like coral. and. There's stalactites that are moving against gravity. They're going up in the air like deer antlers. Some are at like a 45 degree angle. These are called holectites. H-E-L-I-C-T-I-T-E-S, holectites, spelling B. These are mysterious even now, right? But what seems to be behind these are principles of fluid physics, right? Like capillary action, surface tension in water. Water does weird stuff. You can siphon water. If you have water in a column, it's trying to level out. 
Think about water towers in your hometown, right? You pump water up there, it can push water downhill and back uphill to get it out of your sink. Something similar seems to be happening here where water is getting pushed out of a very small crack, almost microscopic. And that water maintains surface tension as it's pushed out. There's more water in the crack behind it, pushing it down. As it maintains surface tension, it can beat up on something, like an obstacle or an imperfection. Usually the highest, most exposed place is where it evaporates from first. When it evaporates, what does it leave behind? Right, and then more water, like a siphon, is sucked in to take its place. These are really weird. They're very, very small. They can be smaller than the bones in your pinky finger, but they can be older than the stuff around it because the amount of water involved in this is very, very small. That's a nyptus beetle. Wait, 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 a what? We got the nyptus beetle. The very strange, almost blind, cave-dwelling insect that lives only on fecal matter. So I need a volunteer. Somebody needs to stay here and point that out with the flashlight. But don't get too close. Don't scare the beetle, because sometimes they fall off. So make sure people get around you. I want everybody to see the beetle. We got a bonus. Big bonus. We got a beetle. Follow me after you've seen the beetle. They kind of overdid it with the bridge, didn't they? Well, I don't know. I can't see what's down there until you shine the light, but uh, I'm, I'm guessing it's deep. That's the bottomless pit. I don't want to see it. Give me up. Yes. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. My stomach hurts. <laughs> We're going to wait until everybody gathers up here, and then I'm going to tell you a Jack Mitchell story. Is anyone scared of heights? <laughs> okay. Don't look down that hole, then. I'm going to tell you the Jack Mitchell story, and then we might take a look down there. That's okay. No, you're okay. We're going to stop here. we got to imagine if you're on Jack Mitchell's tour, did we all get to see the crawl? Yep. Yeah. Not many people made it this far. If you were on Jack's tour, this was the grand finale. Because on Jack's tour, there's no man-made tunnel, and there's no bridge. So if you were brave enough to crawl and squeeze to the lip of this inky black void, Jack, at this point, is in full showman mode. And he's only using a road flare for light. We've all seen road flares, like a big firecracker light. Mm -hmm. Jack tells you a story that happened to him, a real story about being stuck on a rope hanging hundreds, thousands of feet down that hole. Mm. It's a true story, it just didn't happen here. It actually happened to him in another cave in the park, but it sounds better here. But the story is that he was hanging in the abyss, he got stuck on this pulley, he's hanging in the abyss for 12 hours, he drops rocks in, he can't hear him land. Eventually, he even drops his flashlight, and it's so deep that it swallows the light. This is the bottomless pit. Dun, dun, dun. And then Jack tells you this whopper of a story, and he throws your only light source, without warning, into the bottomless pit. He throws the road flare in, and what do you think happens to the light? It's gone. Yeah, it disappears. Because this goes to the center of the earth. And then he'd start up his flashlight, and you had to go back the way you came in, right? There's no man-made tunnel to get us further along. And you would leave Jack's tour with that incredible whopper of a story, 
which you probably took home and told the neighbors and relatives, right? Word of mouth advertising. I met people who were little kids on Jack Mitchell's tour a long time ago. They still remembered the bottomless pit story. State Parks takes over from the Mitchells in 55. You're never going to believe what they discovered. Yeah, the bottomless pit. The bottomless pit has a bottom. It's probably about 40 feet. And then the cave levels out. And then within 100 feet or so, it ends. It's the end of the cave. So not only does it have a bottom, but they had to take hundreds of road flares out of there. <laughs> and what they realized about the road flares is they had been um, altered. Jack had altered the road flares so he could roughly time how long they were going to burn. Oh my and when they were about to go out, he could create the illusion of it disappearing into the bottomless pit. That's awesome. That's cool. Yeah, right. <laughs> There's one story that tells you who Jack Mitchell was as a personality. I think that's the story. Yeah, a practical joker for sure. He had a lot of jokes with rattlesnakes, too, that were already dead. But now, well, I have to confess something. I've kind of been lying to everybody. Mitchell Caverns is not a cave. It's two caves. I'm sorry. <laughs> two caves with a man-made tunnel in between them. So as we continue on, we're going to go through two airlock doors, and we're going to leave this north-facing cave behind, and we're going to enter a south-facing cave. And you're really going to notice the difference, I guarantee it. But you might have to hold these doors open for you, each other, because they're kind of heavy, they don't always stay open. And in the back, can you all make sure all the doors close behind you? Yeah. And we all saw that Niptus beetle? Yeah. You guys should all buy lottery tickets, that's unusual. <laughs> all right, let's see what we have in the next cave. It's pretty neat that they built the uh, the bridge over it. So his tour again just stopped at the at the mouth. That's right. Right. Just at the lip of that big inky black hole. Right. He always wanted to build this tunnel. Um, it wasn't until 1969 that State Parks put it together, which must have cost you know a pretty penny. So yeah, we're walking through. It looks like just a, a gold mine. Um, yeah. The same um, techniques as you would. Take a mine shaft or a mine at it is right. what was used here. Pneumatic drills and dynamite and lots of engineering. All right, we're in the new cave system now. We got one more cave telephone game. Oh, wow. Mini cave. Those look like, like little candelabra. They do. It uh, makes me think of Fraggle Rock. That's a reference not many the youngsters <laughs> are Dating myself a little bit. But this is a miniature cave that as they drilled this tunnel out, right, they accidentally uncovered all these small little caves that they didn't really know were there. All right, we're going to keep moving. More steps. Now we're going up. Whoa. Wow, look at this. This is uh, more stalactites and columns. Oh, wow, look at these. Very thin and about three feet uh, hanging down from the ceiling. Yeah, there's a hundreds, lot of if not thousands. in here that are in really good shape. This was a difficult place to get into before the man made tunnel. So, not a lot in here got damaged by people. Can I lick this? I would not recommend it. It looks like uh, vanilla ice cream. <laughs> melting, <laughs> melting ice cream. It does look like melting ice cream. But we can all feel the difference now that we're in a new cave, right? Oh, yeah. It's 
63, 64 in here, so the temperature is not much different. Really what you're feeling is the humidity. It's 29% humidity in here right now. Yesterday it was 34%. The temperature also yesterday was 64, so 63. So this cave has a lot more changes because it has a south-facing natural entrance. And what do south-facing entrances get? Direct sunlight, right? That little bit of direct sunlight can change this cave a lot. We went through a man-made tunnel, which had always been Jack Mitchell's dream to connect his two caves. Um, very expensive, hard to do all the math and engineering to hit those two points. He never got it done. 1969, 1970, state parks had a contractor do that. But they kind of created a problem. They didn't realize it. One thing interesting about caves, cave science, is that whole study is relatively new. Right, has not been around very long, and we still learn a lot of new stuff about caves all the time. If they were to dig that tunnel today, they might not do it. Because what we have here is a high pressure cave, right? More humidity, higher temperature. Compared to the last cave we were in, that's low pressure. When air travels from high pressure to low pressure, what does that generate? You probably experienced it all weekend here? Wind. They created a wind tunnel inadvertently. And they didn't realize these caves kind of need to stay very, very um, static. They don't need change. That little Nyptus beetle we saw, which you guys, again, very lucky. That guy has never moved into this cave. Even though they've been connected for 50 years, those beetles have not made the great, the great trek into the new cave. Probably because this is too much variation for them. Although he was trying. He was close he to that was. door. He was heading. He's bolting. <laughs> a couple of years, he might make it. But they've never moved in here. This has a really a lot of swings in this cave. 1990, they finally put those airlock doors in. And that was able to reestablish each cave as a separate system, which was better for the caves. But again, they didn't know that when they first drilled that. The winter of 2016, 2017, remember I was talking about all those cave babies born in the first room? This was the wettest part of the cave that spring. If you look on the back wall over here, I don't want to blind anybody, but I'll get my flashlight back there. All those ripple marks that reminds you of the stuff on the other side of the canyon, that's more flowstone. And all of that flowstone was wet for months. There were puddles in here. All of these stalactites had water drops on the end of them. At one point, June 2017, it was about 80 degrees in this room, and it was 80% humidity. Wow. It was like Florida, no beach. They call this room the Fallen Stalactite Room. But you know what? I have not been able to figure out why in eight years, six months. Can anybody help me? Oh, yeah. <laughs> this one right in front of well, you. Well, this giant 10-foot-long stalactite that fell out of the ceiling, I think it looks like right there. Kind of looks like it happened recently. But look at the mini stalactites there. They change shape, direction. And as you step around the corner... You're going to see that what this fell against, it's now melded, welded to by so much calcium carbonate deposited. So this happened a long time ago, even though it looks recently. And there's always an exception to the rule, right? You can touch a cave formation right here. If you need support or want to feel what it's like as you step over what this knocked over. You'll know where to put your hand. It looks like a fried egg. You don't have to touch it. It is 50 years of thousands of people's skin oils just oozing and melding, fermenting right here. Sounds delicious. 
A lot of fun in caves. We have a lot of fun. After this, there's going to be a little bit of a squeeze, and then we're going to be in the hollow floor room. Oh, this is narrow. Oh, look, at, I, I want to get this audio. This is not me EQing the audio. This is really unusual. Wow, that is cool. Yeah, so before that squeeze, the only way into those rooms was this crack above, which is even more of a squeeze. Jack, I believe, opened that up later in his career. By the way, this is an amazing tour. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Nice to have you guys here. You'll notice here that there's plant material oozing out from the stalactites and stalagmites. What, what do we have here? This is a wood rat nest, right? All of its food and all those cactus thorns to protect it are all oozing out from behind these pillars and columns. Right, look on the floor here. A very active rat's nest. Because this cave is warmer, and it's easier for animals to get in and out. There's a lot more biological activity here. But I'm going to move back this way. Have you seen any rats? Yes. Okay, once we're all in here, guys, we're going to do something really cool. It's 2022. There's light pollution everywhere, but not in the cave, right? We're going to get to see what the caves look like when we're not in here. But here's what we need. If you have any phones, cameras, anything that makes light, hide it in your pocket or turn it off, all right? Because it's going to get weird. Are you guys ready? No. <laughs> they say no. Lights off. Everybody's in the room? Yep. Okay. Keep your extremities down because the big bats will come out when the light's out. And you don't want them to... I'm just joking. Three, two, one. <laughs> right? You're kind of waiting for your eyes to adjust. And they don't really adjust. That's dark. Don't walk around. So how do the rats get around in here? They're blind. Whiskers. Whiskers in their nose, right? One of the reasons rodents can be a real pain is they leave a trail of waste everywhere. like bats, but bats use their ears. Yeah, bats use echolocation, right? Like sonar. What do the snakes in here use? The snakes use... They come in here to eat the rats, sometimes to hibernate. They use the heat-sensing pits on their faces, and they also use their tongues, which is like a nose. That little Niptus beetle we saw... We don't really know much about how they get around in the dark. When we're not in here, this is what the cave looks like. Have we had enough? Yeah. No. No. Whoa, now it's purple. a party. Now it's a party. I need a volunteer, though. Ah. Sir, come up here and please press that, that button. Press and hold that red button. Blacklight is fun, right, because it's a trick of science that allows human eyes to see part of the ultraviolet spectrum of light which normally only things like insects can see. Has anybody tried this at night in the desert? Yes. What happens to scorpions under black light? Yeah, they glow, right? They fluoresce. What you're probably seeing with scorpions is a natural sunscreen reflecting ultraviolet radiation. So minerals do really interesting things too. Look at the ceiling over here. Something really bright up there, right? Some minerals look different under black light. Where my spotlight is extended, that is a strip of cave bacon. No joke, that's the real name. It's dripstone, right? So it's water dripping down, and it makes what looks like a piece of ba bacon. It's wet. Looks wet, kind of translucent. But look at that under the black light. Bright, right? The brightest colors you see in the cave formations, that's the most recently deposited. So that's still growing. If you want to look for black light flashlights, Check Amazon. Sometimes they're sold as hotel inspector flashlights. 
because they <laughs> rat no. urine, no. rodent don't, urine. Don't, don't do that. that don't do that. Them, no. <laughs> no. You can really see where the rodents have been in here, but we got to eat dinner, right? Let's let's stop. Let's leave that one behind. <laughs> All right, we're gonna go to one more big room. So they call us the hollow floor room. Everything that was on this, a lot of the stuff that was on the ceiling fell down, and there's now voids, right? There's empty spots underneath here. You can hear the resonance. Yeah. One oh. more squeeze. Oh, tight squeeze. One too many Twinkies, and you're not going to get through here. And now we're in the big room. Oh, you're not joking. He says, now we're in the big room. And I thought... Hold on a second. I thought the last room was huge. This is of epic proportion. Yeah. Big room, level floor, tall ceiling. Not a whole lot of formations in here, though, right? Did anybody go in our visitor center in that museum? And in the exhibit case is the huge, I don't know, two foot, three foot across clay vessel with a narrow, narrow opening, maybe a couple inches across. When you get back to the visitor center, check it out. It's called an Oya. It's a really old piece of storage equipment. It's like old Tupperware. It's really thin walls, really impressive craftsmanship. Um, eighth of an inch, can hold about 10 gallons. The narrow opening is so that you could plug it with things that even the rats wouldn't want to get into. And you could fill that with water or food and store it in here. Again, no sunlight, cool temps. This is a little bit like a natural refrigerator. That was found in the cave by Jack Mitchell. And that's a story of Jack's, I do believe. When you get back and look at that Oya, what's especially interesting is that it seems to have been repaired prehistorically. There's a broken piece and there's holes where it was tried to, re they tried to reattach it and secure it with sinew or yucca fiber. Uh, a lot of the cool stuff, of course, archeologists took out of this cave and took away. Three of those things are now at the State Indian Museum in Sacramento. One is a stone, you know, chipped knife blade with a wooden handle still attached, which is amazing, right? If you left a modern knife out in the desert, how long do you think it would last? Ten years before it fell apart? That knife that was found in this cave is 1,500 years old, right? So there was like a Roman emperor in Rome when somebody left that in the cave. And you could still use that knife today. It's in that good of shape. They also found... I guess what we could call native Nikes, right? Yucca fiber sandals were found in here. Made from that really spiky plant, even though it looks like bayonets. If you peel the, the fibers out of there, they're really, really soft. They can be braided into rope, and then they were used to make footwear. That's pretty amazing. If I remember right, those are two, three, four hundred year old sandals, and they still look like sandals. If I left my modern sandals outside in the desert, how long would they survive? A couple of days. Maybe, yeah, a year. <laughs> Desert eats that kind of stuff. So again, preserved in here, right, for a long time. My favorite item they found in here that has human use is they found what are called chuckwalla hooks. Does anybody know what the chuckwalla is? A couple of us? Lizard, right? Big lizard, second largest lizard in the United States, or native to the United States. They're big, 18 inches, like nose to tail. It looks like they swallowed a Frisbee because their bodies are round and flat. And that's a special adaptation. They love the rocks out here because they can squeeze into a crack, inflate themselves while continuing to breathe, right? Take a deep breath, and you can't pull them out, right? They wedge themselves in the crack so tightly. 
that generally works on coyotes and eagles, stuff like that, not on savvy desert tribes. They would often take something like willow. If you steam willow wood, let it dry, it holds its shape, right? And they'd make it look like a big candy cane, and then they'd put a stone, bone, or just sharpen the point, the short end. And then you kind of go fishing for lizards. You work that around the lizard, you set the hook, you kind of pop the lizard, right? You haul them out, and what do you think you have? Dinner. I've been told they're a delicacy, tastes like chicken. <laughs> this mountain range is and was famous for chuckwallas. The, when the Chemehuevi people come uh, and visit the caves, they still talk about how much their culture remembers how many chuckwallas were here and are here. Maybe on the way back, we're going to see some. You can't miss them. They're big, and they're not particularly shy. Not only did they find, so the stuff I just mentioned was found on the surface, but they also dug down into the ground. They did excavations. And again, like the first room we were in, there's a lot of fill in here. I mean, it's probably tens, 20, 30 feet down of just fill in here. While they dug it out, they found stone and plant-lined food caches. Um, and that was really important. Again, this is a great place to store something for lean times. Um, this mountain range is remarkable for two things that would have been really important to native people. There's, two, there's foods you can store here. There's pinion pine nuts and there's agave. And that's really important. You know, the desert is amazing. It looks pretty harsh, but there's a lot more food out there than you would imagine at first. The problem you have if you're living here, hunting and gathering, is that you can't store much of the food. You kind of use it or lose it. Two exceptions are, of course, the pine nuts, which are probably $40 a pound right now. Yeah, if you knock those pine nuts, pine cones, out of the tree in, in September, you can get your own pine nuts. You'll have to roast them over a fire. The sap dissipates. Fire-adapted species, right, drops the pine nuts. And then that's not just food you store, but that's protein you can store. That was a big deal. The other plant here is agave. Most of us know agave now from tequila. tequila. For the entire life of the plant, Agave stores sugars in its bulb, never putting up a flower. They used to call them the century plant because they thought they could live 100 years. They don't really live that long, but not far off. They store sugar until one day they put up one of the biggest flowers in the world. You might have seen this if you live in areas with ornamental agaves, like a 20, 30-foot flower stalk goes up, and then it kills the plant, right? It uses all of its life's energy, 40, 50 years of stored sugars to put up one flower. But if you harvest them before they put their big flower up, which flower is so big they call it a mast, right? You can roast the agave in the ground, and that will caramelize the sugars. It takes a couple days. You can still find the roasting pits out here in the Mojave. That could then be stored underground in those food caches, right? You know, not protein you can store, but that's sugar. I mean, that's a lot of energy right there. Both were stored in here, found by archeologists who also found my favorite part of all the stories in the cave is they found the upper arm bones of a giant ground sloth in the cave. <laughs> so there might be more down there. They only did a couple of test pits. The bones were 30,000 years old and they weren't fossils, they're still bone. I love ice age mammals, I'm just gonna come clean. <laughs> I'm like nine years old when it comes to giant ground sloths. The Shasta ground sloth, which was the species found in here, is one of the more unusual and the smallest of the giant ground sloths. This animal was only nine feet long, only 500 pounds. Whoa. Right? Very small for the desert, for giant ground sloths. Uh, 
What's particularly cool about the Shasta ground sloth is it's been extinct for roughly 10,000 years, but because of caves, we know a lot about it. Because almost every cave of size was used by ground sloths, and their bones are found in there. Some caves have also preserved entirely mummified sloths in them. There's a Boy Scouts found one in Arizona in a lava tube that was fully preserved. Skin, tissues, hair, organs, stomach contents. I think they were able to prove that the species had a tongue like a giraffe, what they call a prehensile tongue, from that mummy. I would love to see the merit badge for that. <laughs> Another cave, a famous cave in the Grand Canyon, there's other caves like this, but they, it's called Rampart Cave and it had 50,000 years of sloth dung preserved in the cave. That's a lot of information about an animal that's been gone for thousands of years. You know exactly what they ate. And they ate everything that's still out there. They were vegetarians, they could eat any plant they wanted. I think the sloth story for me is one of my favorites because it brings the outside world and the cave together, the desert outside and the cave together. One of the things in the sloth scat that made a lot of people begin to understand the desert better is that they found the fruits of the Joshua tree in the sloth scat. And everybody loves the Joshua tree, right? Not many plants get that kind of love. They have a U2 album, they have a national park, they have a town, I'm probably forgetting some things, a beloved plant, but not doing so well in the 21st century. Shrinking in range, one of the problems the Joshua tree has is it flowers way up high, right? And its fruits are big, like the size of your fist. Well, what's the intention of a fruit? Animals get energy, the plant gets its seeds spread and fertilized. Seems pretty apparent that a fruit that big, so high up, was not intended for any animal we currently have in the desert. It was probably designed for ground sloths. And as they've gone extinct, the Joshua tree is struggling to disperse its seeds fast enough to keep up with the changing climate. That's not the only plant that has that problem, right? What about avocados? Avocados. I grew up in the Midwest. I saw an avocado when I was like seven or eight. And when it was cut open and the ping pong ball sized nut came out, I was like, what? Who could pass that through their digestive system? Like I know two people, two people max who could move that through their bowels, probably on a bet. But that was actually created for things that are gone now, right? Same thing with honey locusts. If anybody's familiar with honey locusts, Osage orange, Kentucky coffee, gone now. But we live in this world of ice age ghosts. The cave and the desert outside are actually very similar, and the sloth brings that home. This is a time capsule that preserves things. So is the Mojave Desert. It's the most intact ecosystem in the whole state of California. Least amount of change. Almost every plant or animal that was here in 1491 is still out here. Looks like it can survive anything, but we can actually mess it up pretty easily, right? Just like the cave. If we're gonna put solar panels everywhere and move tortoises and pump water out of the desert, we're gonna change the desert. Even though it can survive all these intense temperatures and time and the tortoises can sleep through droughts, we come in, make too many mistakes, we're gonna change that time capsule. Just like when I warned you when we started the tour, right? If we're not careful in caves, we can mess them up. So keep that in mind as you go, right? Caves have a PR problem, the desert has a PR problem. Caves everybody thinks is scary, it's just a hole in the ground. You spend a little time here, you realize, well, there's a lot more happening in here than I thought. I'm probably preaching to the choir on this, but that's true of the desert too, right? 
doesn't look like what many of us are used to. We get the feeling there's not enough water. And so we think about it as a wasteland, something that's not valuable that we should put to good use. Spend a little time in the desert, you'll see it's full of life, right? Hiding in plain sight. If you don't believe me, check out our YouTube page, uh, Providence Mountain State Recreation Area. I got the videos to prove it. And get involved in your public lands. The desert's everybody's desert, right? That's all federal or state public land. But there are people making decisions about your land in air-conditioned offices far away. And they don't always seem to maybe like the desert that much. And maybe some of them haven't understood what the desert is very well. So get involved. That's my soapbox rah-rah talk. Please, thank you, thank you. That's my takeaway message. I'm not running for office. I just want you guys to get involved. But you're clearly passionate about it, and that comes across, so it's thank you. It's easy to be at a park like this in the desert like this, right? So this Mitchell Caverns, which is really two caves, um, and then there's, there were two backcountry caves that were open in the past and probably will be again. One is called Medicine Cave. It made me realize I'm a little claustrophobic. It's not like this cave. What's it called again? Uh, Medicine Cave. Okay. I couldn't get all the way through. I had to turn around. Um, is, it, is it open to the public or is it just... It, in- will, it may be again. It would be permitted. It's very hard to find. It's really rough country on the side of the mountain. It's a lot of rat droppings. I mean, it's very well inhabited by rodents. The other cave is called, it's a famous cave called Cave of the Winding Stair. That's the cave, the Jack story I told you, being stuck on a rope, that happened to him when he was exploring that cave. He was stuck for like 12 hours on the end of a rope, 70, 80 feet down. Yeah, he was apparently like catatonic when they brought him up. He was just on a rope swing, like he was not in official climbing gear. Anyway, that cave is really popular with technical cavers and climbers, um, but is very dangerous. And so... The park is working toward a relationship with caving groups who will be able to better vet people than we could as the state. Like, you know, who has the, who has the skills to get in and out of there? Because it is a kind of a dangerous place. Multiple hundred plus free falls to go down into it. Not for the faint of heart. But I'm gonna let us all out of the cave and return to the sunlit land. This is Andrew Fitzpatrick, interpretive ranger with California State Park signing off from the back room of Mitchell Caverns. Give him a hand, everybody. Come on now. Lucky it's dark in here or I would be blushing.